Just liberty.org. It's good for you and it's good for me. Just liberty.org. Just liberty.org. Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo, and this is the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast. Scott, the Texas legislature is requiring prosecutors to prove somebody can get high for marijuana before they can prosecute the person for possessing it. What does this mean for Texans? I think it means it's always 420 somewhere, and now it's always 420 in Texas. So smoke them if you got them, people. (laughs) Yeah, I don't don't think that's what it means. (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to talk more about what it means later, I suppose. But hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the June 2019 edition of Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious Podcast, covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm here today with our good friend, Amanda Marzullo, who's executive director of the Texas Defender Service. How are you doing today, Mandy? Never been better, Scott. All right. Improving every month. You say yes. that every month. So Yeah, so it's just... A constant upward curve. That That's me. Excellent. Well, this month, I speak to Mark Levin from the Texas Public Policy Foundation about parole reform. Just Liberty's Chris Harris stops by to discuss criminal justice responses to homelessness. And the Texas legislature may have almost accidentally sort of legalized pot or, <laughs> or, or not at all <laughs> or not at all or something to that effect we're gonna dig into it mandy what are you looking forward to on the podcast today uh you know misbehaving judges which is later on down in the list but uh, but obviously always a fun topic yes I, exactly you know black robe disease it affects lots of people first up in our top story Following the lead of the Trump administration, the Texas legislature legalized industrial hemp this session. Hemp is the same plant as marijuana, but it's now legal if the THC content is below 0.3%. The problem is no crime lab in Texas has the equipment necessary to calculate the THC percentage, so prosecutors have dropped dozens of marijuana cases around the state, claiming they can no longer prove the charges in court. Mandy, what do you think of this snafu? You know, that is a surprising issue of implementation more than really what the law is. I think most people would have expected that for someone to be prosecuted in the state of Texas for possessing a substance, that it would be something that you can get high from. Right. The idea that you can have a marijuana plant that you can't get high from, but it's still going to get the same criminal penalties would make no sense to anybody. Yeah. It's the getting you high. That is supposedly the problem. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for t- and so I think, you know, as outraged or frustrated as a lot of prosecutors are, in, you know, what the law is requiring them to do really just makes sense. Right. The idea that you're going to prosecute them when you, you're right, you couldn't even get high from it in the first place is problematic. And so that's a fix to a problem in, in, in one respect. And the other thing is, you know, the prosecutors and the cops and the police unions have just been weeping and gnashing teeth and crying about this all over. And there's story Mm -hmm. after story. And the reality is there's still a lot of ways around this for them. It's there's still ways for them to enforce all this. First, the problems with the crime lab equipment only really applies to things like edibles or CDB oil or things like that. Yeah, so body lotions, you know, products that Uh, have hemp in them. That's right. So they can test the plants in any way smokable plant materials excluded from the hemp statute. So that's not a problem to begin with. Also, 
even if someone claims, oh, this is industrial hemp, if they don't have the paperwork with them to show that it's industrial hemp, they've still committed a Class C misdemeanor. Well, the governor wanted to change pot possession to a Class C misdemeanor anyway. (laughs) And so no one thinks it should be prosecuted any more than that, really, except, I guess, Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor. And... And maybe a few people that work for him. That's right. So at the end of the day, I think that there's still lots of ways to enforce this. It does sound like there may be more of an issue for, you know, the the consumable products. But even there, that's a tiny, tiny portion of the market. We're not talking about anything that's inhibiting a a sort of a, a... a wide, a common law enforcement purpose. Yeah. So when, you know, some prosecutors have announced that they're dropping massive numbers of cases, I think that makes me worry that they're actually prosecuting a lot of cases where someone is not possessing material that someone can get high off of. Right. I I really want to see a breakdown of some of this now. Some of the numbers that have come out of exactly how much resources are being expended on all this is remarkable. In Houston, supposedly these marijuana cases are taking up 18% of the crime lab's capacity. That's kind of astonishing. I think we're wasting a lot of resources enforcing something that the public thinks should be legal straight up. And yeah, it's, I don't know. It's a bizarre situation. It's really funny. It's kind of like eliminating the plumbing board and making us all master plumbers (laughs) on the spur of the moment. These thing, this thing where the legislature just writes laws they haven't considered well and they have weird unintended consequences is really one of the great joys of our every two-year post-session experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I will say that this session seems to have more more issues with this than I remember in past sessions. Maybe I'm forgetting of it, but I do think that some of this may have been, you know, may have really resulted from a dysfunctional Senate. Well, I'm enjoying it, whatever cost it. (laughs) A misdemeanor court judge in San Antonio named Wayne Christian had a probation revocation in a DWI case overturned by the Fourth Court of Appeals because he routinely excludes prosecutors from the probation revocation process, negotiating himself on behalf of the state and refusing to hold formal hearings even when defendants request them. Scott, what do you think of this judge bypassing the probation revocation hearing process to make decisions by himself? This was a fascinating, fascinating story. Both the article in the San Antonio Express News and the Fourth Court of Appeals opinion and the briefs behind it. This was a situation where the prosecutors agreed with the defense on what was occurring. All of these allegations about not holding a hearing, not allowing evidence to be presented, those were all things that the state, um, Joe Gonzalez, the new DA in San Antonio, agreed with the defense on. And it really showed this judge's action in a light that we rarely get to see. Mm -hmm. It now turns out, and I think we're going to see more and more come out, but we've been hearing, you know, sort of through the rumor mill, through other sources, that this is not a practice that's just in Judge Christian's court. This is something that may well occur in, in other counties, and I'm hoping we can have more to say about that down the line because it really is quite remarkable. And by the way, not only did the judge 
not hold a hearing and simply decide by fiat. When the habeas corpus writ was filed for a bond reduction and it went to the, the district judge, the district judge actually lowered the bond amount and was going to let her out. Judge Christian went and changed the date of an appointment that she was supposed to have to have. She was not notified. And when she failed to appear at this appointment that he had changed the date of and Mm -hmm. moved it up five days, he immediately revoked her again. And so there really did seem to be, I don't know, some sort of animus or that almost seems personal. The more I think about it, though, I don't think it's personal against the defendant. I think it's personal probably against the lawyer. I don't want you to be challenging me. If you do, I'm going to punish you. I mean, who knows? But at the, you know, at the end of the day, this is just unethical behavior on behalf of a judge who's not behaving as a judge. The duty of a judge is to be an impartial fact finder. And that is not what's happening. He literally refused to allow facts to come in. Yeah, exactly. So he's eschewing that responsibility in every way and really, at the end of the day, kind of eroding our judicial system. Right. The court said there was less than a scintilla of evidence supporting the revocation because he had allowed no evidence to, to come, come in, in whatsoever. He, yeah, he didn't allow the prosecution to submit evidence and he didn't allow the defense to submit evidence. It was just, I'm going to revoke probation on this person. He didn't allow the prosecution to speak. Yeah, he, exactly. he behaved on behalf of the state and did the negotiation himself. And when the defense asked for a hearing, he told them it's too late for that. Because I've made up my mind based on, right. you know, my own facts. So this is unethical behavior. You know, I think it violates the canons of judicial conduct. It's disturbing. And the allegations that it's happening on a regular basis in front of his court is even more disturbing. Right. And I think that there's a lot more to come out of this story. I want to see what the State Commission on Judicial Conduct does with it, because it seems to me he's clearly violating his duties as a judge. I want to see if uh, the state bar does anything with this, because honestly, what are you doing with an attorney's license if you're just going to straight up ignore the law and and do the sort of thing on your own? I want to find out how often this happens elsewhere, because again, when this story came out, one of the things that happened was defense attorneys around the state said, you know, that happens in my jurisdiction too. And we're starting to hear those stories. So I think this really was more like this story was more like a starting gun than the end (laughs) of a story, right? May have been the end of the story for that DWI defendant, but it was a starting gun for a bigger story on these motions to revoke. Yeah. And and at the end of the day, it's going down to our judicial culture. You know, how is it that someone can behave like this and that it isn't just a huge scandal that has really captivated a, a courthouse? And the final thing I should mention on this that I find just amazing All of the pictures of Judge Christian in this story (laughs) are of him. He happens to operate the Veterans Court in San Antonio, and he runs the Veterans Court wearing a camouflage robe. He actually has a robe that he clearly had custom made in military camouflage to wear on the bench. And he he wears this for photo ops and to perform judicial duties in in the Veterans Court. And when you first see it, you know, I almost thought that, uh, you know, it was a joke or somebody had put in, you know, somebody had photoshopped it. Nope, that's that's him. That's the guy. <laughs> um. <laughs> 
Yeah, I I don't know what to make of that. It, so this is a quirky fellow, I guess we can say to yeah, begin with, who's fi- who's really sort of making the his judicial post his own. Say. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely, and, and he might have taken that a little bit too far. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Next, Mark Levin of the Texas Public Policy Foundation and the National Right on Crime Coalition recently published a pair of white papers suggesting 10 recommendations, each for reforming probation and parole. Scott sat down with Mark to discuss them. Let's hear what he had to say. All right, I'm here today with Mark Levin from the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Mark, thanks for talking with me today. My pleasure. I was excited about your two new reports, and I know that's something not everyone hears very often in in this world, but I'm very excited about these two new reports on um, community supervision, probation, and especially parole that y'all came out with right at the end of session. And I really was most excited because this is a big expansion of y'all's footprint. Um, y'all have sort of dabbled in the probation reform realm for many years and sort of made your, your name in that area. But then with, uh, you know, looking at parole and now you have an, another new report on, on SWAT raids and police issues, y'all are really expanding your criminal justice footprint a lot. And I'm really excited to see it and happy. And so I wanted to talk to you about the details, but also just wanted to say thank you. And I'm really glad to, to see that. Well, thank you. Everyone over here is a major consumer of grits for breakfast, and so we we appreciate uh, all of your insights. Tell me about and let's let's talk about your uh, parole report first. Although both are really about various forms of community corrections, and so they they all sort of have issues that intermingle. But I really really liked your recommendation you had on making parole release decisions based on objective factors that focus on forward looking risk. As you know. I think it's a majority of our inmates are eligible for parole at the moment, and many of them are set off and don't get parole simply because of the nature of the crime. You delved into that here. Talk to us about that. Talk to us about the problem, and what are some of the solutions you see that we could get around that and start paroling more people who would not be a public safety risk if they were released? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we've got these 10 tips for policymakers papers that folks can find on texaspolicy.com, right on crime.com, and you've linked to them as well. And, you know, we provide, uh, as the paper's title would suggest, 10 tips in each of them for policymakers, but also, frankly, the public um, on how we can improve probation and parole. And, you know, the bottom line is these uh, systems obviously are designed as alternatives to incarceration, but they can also be tripwires to incarceration. They can, uh, half the people nationally that go into prisons are revocations for probation and parole. So that's kind of the the idea is just from a free market conservative standpoint, we want to look at any government system, whether it's welfare, healthcare, and say, we don't just want a bigger system, we want to actually get better outcomes. And so we're applying that same lens of accountability and scrutiny to these systems while recognizing, you know, they do important work. And we certainly want to continue to emphasize that there's a need for probation and parole, but that we need to do them in a uh, more effective manner. So getting to your point, we took a look at what Michigan did in 2018, uh, which was to essentially adopt what they referred to as an objective parole law. And it was signed by then Governor Snyder. And the idea was is to focus on the future 
because we're looking at candidates for parole and they can't change what happened in the past, the nature of the offense. I'm, I think that you can argue certainly that the legislators, when they decided these offenses were going to be number one, eligible for parole, period. And number two, they would be eligible after a certain amount of time served. They took into account. They they knew that it was a serious offense. And of course, that's also true when they were prosecuted. The prosecutor knew that. And in some places, you can tell the jury even when someone would be eligible for parole or the judge before they're sentenced. So that makes the argument that that's already been baked into the cake. And now we ought to focus on, is this person prepared to uh, be safely released, provided the right level of supervision and treatment uh, on parole. So we took a look at all of the factors that Michigan set forth in their law, uh, which all make very good sense. Um, and they look not just at, of course, the risk that they might reoffend, but the risk of a serious uh, offense. I mean, after all, if somebody's on parole and, you know, uh, has a joint, right? We're not, that's not necessarily, we didn't, that doesn't mean we made a mistake in releasing them. If we kill, if they kill someone, then obviously that's a different question. So um, uh, I think, as you know, uh, a lot of the, one of the most common reasons for denying parole in Texas is the nature of the offense. So we're not uh, quite there yet in Texas. I think we've obviously the parole rate's gone up here. Um, I remember back when I started, probably in the mid 2000s, we were looking at a 25% parole rate. Now we're closer to 35%. So, and we have 15% when I started. Yeah. And we have fewer new thousands, fewer new crimes by parolees than a, a decade ago. So we've increased the number of people on parole and we have fewer new crimes. So it's been a successful trajectory in Texas, but I think we certainly could could go even further. And and then finally, it's just important for people to know the length of time someone serves in prison has no correlation with recidivism reduction. Even a year in prison is more than enough to complete most rehabilitation programs. So that's that's not the issue. Obviously, there's an incapacitation effect of prison, but a lot of these folks have already reached an age where they're beyond their crime committing years. And there's increasingly uh, accurate assessments that parole boards can use to really, with not 100% by any means, but with some degree of precision to be able to predict what somebody's risk level is uh, upon release. That's right. Somebody said recently that people age out of crime the way they age out of skateboarding. I thought that was a, a pretty accurate and, and, and insightful way to look at it. And and similarly, once someone gets out on parole or once they're on probation, usually you can tell within a couple of years whether or not they're going to succeed on supervision. Um, some of these incredibly long probation sentences or just leaving paroling someone, but then having them spend decades and decades, you know, on supervision, those, those outer years of supervision are not providing much public safety bang for the buck. Now let's turn to probation though. TBPF kind of made your bones on probation reform mm -hmm. and, and you and I both have sort of been around these blocks a long time. And for whatever reason, our probation departments in Texas have just never been able to successfully knock down their rates of technical revocations. Parole did it. Parole was able to, to bring them down dramatically, but still about half of the people who are revoked from prison or to prison from probation in Texas have nothing but technical violations. They haven't necessarily committed a new crime. And I know, oh, well, you don't know how serious these technical violations are is, is always the response. Some of those people might have failed a drug test or they might have, you know, not shown up for meetings and all that's certainly true. But you mentioned half of, of, of new re receives nationally, new, new prison admissions are, are from uh, revocations. And in Texas, I think it's 45, 47 percent, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. What can be done to finally get these Texas probation departments and the judges who oversee them? 
to reduce technical revocations. It's been so long. We've been fighting about this for 15 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. So there's about 24,000 probation revocations every year in Texas, and about half, 12,000, are uh, technical. Um, and uh, those numbers have been persistently high. Now, what it, uh, beneath the surface, there are a number of departments that have made major reductions. I mean, Harris County is a good example. But other de- you know departments that have not kind of implemented things like graduated sanctions and incentives, those departments kept increasing their revocations over the last decade. So statewide, we've budged maybe just a couple percent. Now, we have perhaps obviously a larger uh, population uh, in Texas than uh, obviously our general population. But so, but just in raw numbers, we haven't really moved uh, the needle statewide on probation revocations. And I think your listeners mostly know we have over 120 probation departments in Texas. So, you know, just having some uh, we which we do. We have some excellent probation chiefs uh, who have made tremendous uh, change in their departments uh, in terms of reducing unnecessary revocations. But that uh, then you have just you know many others that have not. So that's the danger we have. Whereas well, obviously we have a statewide parole system that can kind of turn on a dime. So um, there's a number of things we need to do. I think it starts with um, making sure the conditions uh, of probation are uh, tailored to the individual based on a, a risk and needs assessment. Um, and so because if you you know, uh, Chairman Whitmire has pointed out he probably couldn't succeed on probation because there's, you know, 60 plus conditions. And, you know, we tell people even who have never been an alcoholic, alcohol, nothing to do with their offense, that they can't have a glass of wine with dinner. And who's going to enforce that? I mean, we have 120 people per probation officer. So it's just like disciplining a child. You want to choose, you know, prioritize the things that are most important and actually enforce those. You don't have a lot of unenforced rules. That's right. Yeah. That's- now, not and enforce them not with a sledgehammer, right, but with a scalpel. So, you know, I always make the ana- analogy to a child that touches the stove. You don't wait till he does it five times before he touches the hot stove. And then you say, you're grounded in your room for the rest of the year. But that's what we do in probation. So that's the whole notion of graduated uh, sanctions to say, okay, well, um, you know, you you missed this meeting. So uh, now uh, we're going to increase your reporting or uh, something like that. You're going to have a curfew. And so there's all sorts of things we can do short of revoking people to actually accomplish a purpose was to get them to comply with their probation conditions. And uh, if you do incarcerate them, a weekend in jail is just as effective because all the research shows it's not the duration, but it's the swiftness and certainty uh, of the sanction. So on the flip side, actually positive incentives are even more effective than sanctions. So literally telling people at the beginning of probation, you know, you're going to decide how long your probation is. You can earn your way off of this by being exemplary. You can be out of here in a year or two years. Right. Um, And that's uh, proven to be very effective. And, you know, a lot of states have capped revocations too. Louisiana even at 90 days, and they had uh, reduced recidivism. They saved taxpayers tens of millions of dollars. North Carolina similarly did the same thing. Nice. And so um, we, for people that are revoked for technical violations, uh, why have it be that, okay, you have five or 10 years left on your sentence, you have to go back for all of that and instead say, well, no, it's going to be 120 days. It's going to be 90 days. And um, uh, I think that obviously the savings would be enormous. 
practice and we could reinvest those into, you know, proven supervision strategies that actually reduce recidivism. Uh, because one of the interesting things underneath all of this is there's very little evidence. There's actually no evidence that uh, many te- types of technical violations are correlated with a new offense. So just because somebody missed a meeting doesn't mean they're going to commit a violent offense. Um, so uh, now, you know, there's obviously exceptions like, you know, if you've got someone who committed a violent or a sex offense and they're violating a no contact order with a victim. Now that's different. I would say, okay, uh, let's perhaps revoke that person, right, um, for the rest of their sentence. But um, I think by and large, we could actually do away with most technical revocations. All right. And last but not least, I really wanted to to get you to flesh out because I thought it was an interesting suggestion and an interesting comment, really, I guess, more than a suggestion, but an observation. On your parole document, the last of your uh, 10 tips was to recognize that parole agencies are not always the best provider of every intervention. God forbid that the criminal justice system can't be all things to all people and consider a role with not for nonprofits with strong community ties. And you, you mentioned the Colorado legislation, which I'd learned a little more about recently and how really integrated their reentry programming and, and parole programming has become with some of these community organizations and, and, and community initiatives. And, and that really is different from what we've done. Which, you know, when we did our big, you know, probation, parole reform to limit revocations, a lot of that went to, you know, new private prisons for some of these short term, you know, revoke you for three months instead of, you know, the full term type things at the intermediate sanction facilities. Um, but we really didn't use this community organizations approach. So, so what would that look like? I, it's so fascinating to hear Texas Public Policy Foundation endorsing this after having heard basically some liberals out of Colorado endorsing the same thing. But when I read it, I see exactly why it's a bipartisan approach, right? I mean, it, 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 checks a lot of boxes. So so talk to me about this approach. Yeah, well, I mean, from a free market standpoint, right, the idea is that government isn't best suited to deliver every service. And I think it's particularly true with some of the interpersonal uh, things that really, you know, it's easy to measure how many times someone met with their probation or parole officer, but the quality of the interactions is very difficult to assess. And I think there's also a need for mentoring. There's not everything, uh, you know, if you're on probation or parole, you want to tell your probation or parole officer, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm not even thinking of anything bad. I'm not close to slipping back. And, but you could actually tell a mentor or a peer mentor something, well, maybe I am having some issues and, and you can help me with those. And so one of the examples, uh, in addition to Colorado, I talk about is the Arches program in New York City, which is a mentoring, peer mentoring for 18 to 24 year olds on supervision. And they've got, you know, mentors who, may went to prison 20 years ago themselves. And now they've established a law abiding lifestyle, but they have credibility as messengers to these young adults. And uh, they've had a two thirds reduction in recidivism with with that program. And then Colorado was a similar concept, but a little bit different. But this is the wages program work and gain education and employment skills. And so essentially, they carved out some money from the Department of Corrections budget to a general contractor, which enabled that uh, the president general contractor enabled them to have very small contracts, subcontracts to providers, some of which were run by people who, you know, were formerly incarcerated. But for example, there's a kind of a one-stop center in Denver and they do job training, a whole host of services, and they've had a 2.5% uh, return to prison rate so far. So these folks are still on parole, 
but they're getting these alternative services or these additional services from a nonprofit that's really community-based that has a staff that who um, can identify with these individuals on supervision. So one of the things actually I'd like to mention is in Texas, we... uh, kind of took a similar approach uh, to some degree last session, now this session, with regard to state jail reentry. Because as most folks know, uh, state jails, uh, almost everyone is discharged without supervision. They're not eligible for parole. They can earn up to 20% in earn time uh, from a 2011 law that we worked on. But but, uh, so in 2017, uh, we worked with Tan Parker and uh, Goodwill and a number of other allies, Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, on um, this uh, program, that uh, this bill that Representative Parker passed in 2017 to say you could get out early from state jail on a pilot program, a little more than 300 folks, um, and you would be able to do your remaining time essentially in a work release program through Goodwill or another nonprofit. So it wasn't implemented until this session because this session legislature actually funded it in the budget. And so we're going to get a uh, pretty soon get that, see that uh, starting up and what obviously we hope to see is uh, lower recidivism, but also positive outcomes, higher employment rate for the 300 plus participants in this program. So I think that it kind of all goes back to this idea that basically it is called community corrections. So we need to put the community back into it. And when it comes to public safety, it's not just the government that is responsible for that, that we can engage, you know, nonprofits, engage volunteer mentors. I mean, obviously programs, as we know, like prison fellowship and prison entrepreneurship program, Bridges to Life. There's a lot of good examples of that uh, here in Texas. And um, sure, tons of faith-based stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so the government isn't always the best position to deliver some of those things. And I think that having people on probation and parole, being able to have relationships with folks that they're not in a, you know, they're not reporting to, but they're um, having having a more uh, kind of peer-to-peer or professional interaction, I think that's really valuable. And one of the issues we also discussed in the top 10 tips for uh, policymakers on parole paper is some of the states severely limit restrictions, place severe restrictions on people on parole, on who they can interact with. So not so they say you can't interact with anyone with a criminal record. Well, you just precluded peer mentoring, right? Right. Uh, but some, uh, some of the best uh, programs now we're seeing for interrupting gang violence use uh, people that were former gang members because they're the trusted messenger. So uh, we really have to make sure that we're kind of open to a variety of different delivery models and not just saying it all has to come from a centralized government agency. Up, the city of Austin eliminated its no-sit, no-lie ordinance named at the homeless while simultaneously authorizing a new shelter and expanded access to services. Just Liberty's Chris Harris sat down with Scott to describe local activists' homes, not handcuffs campaign that led to this result. Okay, Chris, tell me about the Homes Not Handcuffs campaign. Tell us a little about the genesis of how this got started and what y'all were asking for, what you wanted the city of Austin to do. And I know there were compromises at the end of the process. Tell us what you finally ended up with. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. 
So what we tried to push for with the Homes Not Handcuffs campaign was the repeal of local Austin ordinances that criminalize uh, homelessness, uh, basically uh, behaviors associated with extreme poverty and your status as not having shelter and needing to uh, sleep, be, live uh, out outdoors. And specifically in Austin, there was three ordinances. There was a, an ordinance that prohibited camping. There's an ordinance that prohibiting sitting, lying and sleeping in the downtown area. And there was an ordinance that prohibited panhandling, uh, both uh, uh, the aggressive variety and any form uh, around certain locations like ATMs or uh, after 730 at night. And so we you know, started the campaign um, to, to repeal these ordinances. And we really, the genesis of it was uh, November 2017. The organization I was working for at the time, uh, Grassroots Leadership, was approached by a theater troupe. And this woman named Ronnie Chelbin, who was organizing people uh, who are currently and formerly had experienced homelessness, and into doing these theater of the oppressed style shows. And their next show was something called No Sit, No Lie. And it was about sp that specific ordinance uh, told from the experience of people that had been ticketed. And and they wanted to know how they could have the most impact with the performance. And then literally within a week or two of, of that meeting where we kind of talked about, you know, what that could look like if we wanted to do it. The first in a series of audit reports released by the city auditor of Austin came out and it was about these three ordinances. And what they basically said was that they were costly and ineffective. Uh, they were creating a burden for people experiencing homelessness, which obviously we already knew. And and they directed the city to 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 fix them uh, because they also might be unconstitutional. And so with that, we kind of launched the campaign. And, and 18 months later, we didn't get the full repeal, but we did get uh, a drastic narrowing of all three of the ordinances that we think is going to be uh, have a big impact, positive impact for people experiencing homelessness in the community. OK. And the groups involved in the campaign were grassroots. It was Texas Fair Defense. Who else? That's right. Ga Gathering Ground Theater, that theater troupe I mentioned, uh, Mobile Loaves and Fishes was also involved. And Austin Democratic Socialists of America came in a little bit into the campaign and really uh, added a lot as well. All right. So tell us what you ended up getting that you described what it was you were after. Mm -hmm. And I know that that in all all these instances, what you got was sort of a compromised version. So what what ended up happening? So what they did was that they narrowed both the uh, camping and the no sit, no lie uh, to only now be prohibited if you are materially endangering yourself or someone else by the behavior. Um, so, you know, in the instance of of camping, um, you know, if you happen to be sleeping in like a riverbank and it's raining and it's going to flood, then then, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense to criminalize you in that moment. But the officer, <laughs> the officer does have like the authority to make you move, basically. Uh, uh, and that was the example that we were given for why that would be applicable in that case. Um, obviously, there potentially could be some public health or safety issues related to, you know, certain things going on at a campsite. So so there's some opportunity for the police to intervene. And then the other exception where police can still ticket is if you are making public property um, impassable, you are impeding the reasonable use of it or you're making it hazardous. Um, so in the instance of either camping or sitting or lying down, this would mean if you were doing it in the middle of the sidewalk or a bike lane or a street such that, you know, uh, people couldn't pass. If you were, you know, uh, 
really taking up uh, the entirety of, uh, you know, some some piece of public property since that it couldn't be used otherwise uh, for a long period of time and other people were trying to use it. So now I think the main thing that really both of these are going to do is ensure that people can actually sit or lie down. There, there are there is a place where they can do these things that won't <laughs> won't cause harm to anyone else, but will now allow them to actually perform the functions that we all you know have to perform as humans and not be subject to criminal citation. The last thing is on the solicitation. So this was the most like obviously unconstitutional. It's a very much a freedom of speech issue to be able to ask for money. You know, and they won't they would never ticket church groups, you know, panhandling. They would never ticket school groups panhandling. Right. Only people experiencing homelessness would get these tickets. And so uh, what they basically did was they took all reference to panhandling out of that ordinance. They changed it to a aggressive confrontation ordinance. And it basically now is a blend of classy uh, disorderly conduct and classy assault um, such that there is a aggressive behaviors are are still prohibited. Um, if you're threatening or intimidating someone by touching or or, you know, using offensive gestures or language uh, at them. Uh, but Asking for money in itself is not part of the equation in any way. So people can ask for money as their, you know, First Amendment rights protect. Well, the idea that giving someone a Class C misdemeanor ticket that they can't afford to pay anyway was going to solve <laughs> people asking for change on the sidewalk was always this bizarre concept. I mean, unconstitutional or not. And yes, I agree. It almost certainly is the just profound stupidity of the idea that <laughs> that yeah. is going to solve the problem that right. that's going to do anything but just end up with a bunch of homeless people in jail because they had warrants issued when they couldn't pay these tickets that you knew they couldn't pay when you gave it to them they're begging for quarters <laughs> that's right and that's you're right. giving them a ticket for 200 bucks or something yeah it really highlights you know i think in in one of the most explicit ways possible how you know as a society we turn to the you know punitive responses we turn to police and courts and jails to deal with uh, really social and economic uh, issues and so you know i i think that you know there was a lot of folks involved with our campaign you know that you know as usual when you have compromises um that were really concerned about the level of compromise and and I think I shared that concern. But I think to hear the police chief come in, you know, on Friday and talk about it uh, last Friday, right after uh, the city council meeting and talk about how this was going to fundamentally change, you know, how they ultimately as police deal with people experiencing homelessness. You know, it, it really highlighted the, the degree of victory that this is um, and such that we're not going to be using police to really just <laughs> to try to address homelessness anymore. time for our rapid fire segment we call the last hurrah mandy are you ready locked and loaded scott the texas legislature created 50 new crimes this legislative session including three new crimes that you can commit with an oyster scott is there anything left to criminalize well to be fair those three new oyster crimes were all misdemeanors <laughs> they did not create any new oyster felonies we're just stuck at 11 
But we really have taken this overcriminalization thing way too far. 50 new crimes, many, many more penalty increases in addition to the new crimes. This is a one-way ratchet, and I really don't know what it will take to stop it. Comptroller Glenn Hager denied compensation to Alfred Brown after a Harris County court declared him actually innocent of the capital murder allegations that put him on death row for more than 10 years. Does his decision make sense? No. Uh, Hagar has awarded compensation to a lot of people who have been in the same exact position as Brown. Makes no sense. It's illogical. The judge, the prosecutor, everybody agreed who was involved in the case that he was actually innocent. This is largely, I believe, because the police union keeps busting Busting it. it. And it's also not Hagar's position. He's not a judicial expert. Why is he looking into the validity of a judicial order? Why indeed. The Canadian Supreme Court has a fuzzy, human-sized mascot to promote the court, an owl named Amicus, which means friend of the court. Scott, what should the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals adopt as its mascot? Well, I had posed that question on Twitter, (laughs) and our friend Elsa Alcala had suggested it should be an ostrich, which I thought was a fine idea, and so I had suggested the name Erotum the ostrich. (laughs) the ostrich. Erotum being, of course, an error that you have to correct in your opinion after it's already been published. With your head in the sand. That's right. And so an ostrich with its head in the sand named Erotum, I think, is, is, is my current suggestion. But someone also suggested a piece of pocket lint with googly eyes, and I am open to that one as well. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or listen to it on my blog, Richer Breakfast. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. Shout out to Mark Levin. Thanks a lot for doing the interview. I enjoyed it. (laughs) 